Hello everyone, this is the Unorthodoxy Podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is the very last episode in our series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. I think it's high time we finished the series, not because it's possible to actually reach a conclusion about anything, I don't think it is, but because I think there are other things that we need to get to. In the previous episode, I spoke about eschatology, which is the idea that we all have the sense of what our collective and personal human destiny is about. And it's more than just a sense. We actually have various ways of articulating that sense. Two core ideas will guide me in this concluding episode. The first idea, which I'll talk about second, is philosophical. It's the idea of mediation. I'll explain, if only very briefly, how this idea shaped my own coming back to faith after various bouts of agnosticism and atheism. The second idea, which I'll talk about first, is theological, and it's the idea of apocalypse. The word apocalypse means a few things. Usually people talk about it as a kind of end times word, evoking images of dragons and Armageddons. But in theology, the idea is much less catastrophic and blood-drenched, although there is a bit of that as well. Although it includes facing some dragons and fighting your own battles, it's the idea of revelation, or what you might even call an event of understanding. It's an idea that happens to occupy the sixth chapter of my book, Seeing Things As They Are. There's a lot more to apocalypse in theology, of course, but it's the event of understanding that I'll focus on here. The event of understanding is nested for me within the category and reality of mediation. And while this may sound a little bit too abstract uh, for the moment, I'm hoping this will help you to make some sense of your own philosophical and theological journeys. First, let's get to apocalypse. As we walk through the world, there are moments that rupture our existing framework of understanding. This can be sudden or gradual, but the general idea is still the same. It involves a shock to our worldviews. One moment everything seems settled, and then just when you think you've arrived, everything changes. Think of the experience of the political activist and persecutor of new converts to Christianity named Saul of Tarsus, and his famous Damascus Road experience. An event of understanding, an apocalypse if you will, that is described in the book of Acts. As the story goes, Saul is blinded by a vision. Think of that paradox for a moment. Blinded by a vision. He sees something and then ends up walking around in the dark. And then after that, he takes a huge chunk of time to reconfigure his entire field of perceptions. And eventually he emerges as St. Paul, Apostle of Christ and primary writer of the New Testament. What you see here is a fantastic archetype of the experience of conversion. In one sense, as with Paul, there is the experience of insight or understanding. What has not been clear suddenly emerges with breathtaking and even disturbing clarity. But there is at the same time blindness, that is, ignorance and bewilderment. A conversion without ignorance and bewilderment is not a conversion. If we're woken up without realizing that we are and have been asleep, then I don't think we've really woken up. We're in new territory all of a sudden, completely baffled by everything we do not know. The brand new insight, i.e. coming into the light, is accompanied by darkness, i.e. the realization that we're back at square one with an awful lot to
to learn. Think of it this way. Life is a bit like a series of ladders. You start on one, climb to the top, and when you reach the top of that one ladder, you suddenly realize that you're at the bottom of another ladder. Don't panic, after all, this is how it is for everyone. You finish high school and you feel like you've finally made it, and then you realize you're back at square one, at the bottom of the college or university ladder. You get to the top of that one, and you're at the bottom of the career ladder. You figure a lot out, and then you become a parent, and suddenly you're confronted with a startling mystery in all things, all over again. It's like this for everyone, at least if we're awake. This picture of this series of ladders is pretty uh, indicative of my own journey. Because I have a tendency to think about or maybe overthink pretty much everything, I've experienced not just one conversion, but multiple conversions. But like St. Paul, I've come to recognize that most of the time my conversions have not been altogether discontinuous with my previous worldview. As with Paul, often what first appears to be a horrendous negation of a previous way of looking at the world turns out to be perfectly continuous with it. Paul, for instance, had always perceived the Christians to be against his own Judaic way of life. What truly shocked and terrified him, at least in part, what blindsided him on the Damascus Road, was the recognition that this new emerging worldview called Christianity was a deepening and continuation of his own Judaism. Yes, of course, there are forms of Christianity that do betray Judaism, but what Paul saw in his own actions was that by torturing and killing Christians, the real betrayer was not the Christians, but himself. The demand placed on him was not to change from one religious perspective to another, but to change within the confines of his very being. As Carl Jung suggests, Paul became a Christian because he already was one, although without necessarily knowing it. What appeared to be disloyalty to his original religious way of life was, he soon learned, surprisingly faithful to it. This can be reversed to, of course, what we often perceive to be fidelity to something, as Scotus and Ockham no doubt did, may in some ways be a betrayal of it. As I've noted in the previous episode, a lot depends on how you look at things. And this is the idea of mediation, which I'm going to say more on in a moment or two. And yet, the betrayal can also be reversed. It can become the equivalent to taking a step backwards in order to take a momentous leap forwards. I've shared this before, but I will share it again since I think it sheds some light on the experience of growth, at least as I've come to understand it, and it may help you to figure out your own journey somewhat. There's a Zen parable about a farmer who lived in China. He wasn't wealthy, so he made use of this really old horse to plow his field instead of using a tractor. One day, this old horse dropped dead, and everyone in the village remarked on how terrible it was that such a thing could happen. The farmer responded by saying, we'll see. Turns out someone in the village had previously noticed the aging horse and had already managed to save enough money to get the farmer a new horse as a gift. This got the people of the village talking about how lucky the farmer was. His response was, we'll see. A short while later, the new horse jumped over the farm fence and ran away. And the villagers said, oh, the poor farmer. The farmer's response again was, mm, we'll see. 
Well, the horse came back, and everyone was delighted. Then one day the farmer's son was out riding on the horse, and he fell off the horse and broke his leg. The villagers were shocked by this, and they said, this is terrible. But the farmer's response, quite predictable by this point, was, we'll see. Well, what did they see? They saw that when the army came looking for new recruits, they saw the boy's injury and decided against recruiting him. Everyone's response to this was, what a lucky man. We'll see, said the farmer. The point is obvious. Immediate judgment can often be wrong. Yes, certain things are inherently good or bad. And it does not do us any good to necessarily deny this. But it's also good to realize, although not in a strictly utilitarian way, that to see things in part is to fail to see them. I'll take this idea up again in a moment, since I think it is the key to getting the queen to come out of exile and to stop believing that God is dead. But before I get there, I'd like to point something out. A slightly dangerous interpretation of this Zen parable is the apparent recommendation that you should be so detached from what is happening that you end up failing to recognize what is happening. Instead of encouraging a posture towards meaning, a way of mediating the world that says what isn't clear now will make sense one day, the parable can be taken to encourage a kind of nihilism that says whatever happens doesn't really matter. The farmer responds to his son's broken leg in the same way that he responds to receiving a new horse, almost as if the farmer's brain is stuck on a kind of existential copy-and-paste function. I think some of the confusion and ambivalence around faith, especially in those embedded within the Western frame of modernity, stems from rather vague understandings and responses to things that require greater clarity. This, for me, is some of the brilliance of David Bentley Hart's book, The Experience of God, which I would recommend that all of you have a read of. In that book, Hart proposes something very simple, a definition of God. His main problem with many of the debates between, say, creationists and evolutionists or new atheists and fundamentalists is that they debate endlessly about God without once defining what they are actually talking about. And often they turn out to be talking at cross-purposes, sometimes at cross-purposes with themselves. So it's no wonder that it's difficult for them to find any kind of agreement. As Hart shows, once you have a definition, many of the points of apparent contention simply pale into insignificance or become entirely irrelevant. At least this is partly why I've gone through the trouble of explaining some rather unusually complicated theological ideas in this series. The reason is, once we have some explicit sense of what is often implicitly believed, we can actually move forward and, to quote the farmer, we can actually see. So it is with the death of God and the exiled queen. Chronological snobbery often prevents us from really seeing. And so I've taken you through this journey, often at the risk of losing you and often at the risk of miscommunicating what I really mean, because... I think this can offer us a better sense of what we're dealing with in our own journeys. Also, much of this journey has mirrored my own experiences in the life of faith, especially in connection with my own theological discoveries. I could take you through quite quite a number of theological details and detours, of course, about, say, how I changed my views on free will, atonement, demons, suffering, and so on. But what I'll do instead is talk about 
mediation because this is the thing that illuminates what it means to navigate the world of faith and unfaith. I've gone through many twists and turns on my own theological and faith journey and I know that you too have gone through many twists and turns of your own. This is part of what it means to be human and to be living consciously, I think. But it was during but it was during both my masters and doctoral studies that the question of mediation began to really show up for me. And in the process, it showed me up. My master's dissertation, for those who are curious, was on Nietzsche and Chesterton and the Matrix movies, believe it or not. I was particularly interested then in Nietzsche's and Chesterton's different modes and ways of perceiving. In other words, I was fascinated by how looking at the world through their eyes revealed two quite different pictures. And my doctorate was in philosophical and visual hermeneutics, and more specifically dealt with the philosophical hermeneutics of Chesterton. And there was a lot of theology thrown in there too. In working on all of this hermeneutical theory, which is uh, crudely put, deals with the conditions for the possibility of interpretation, it became clear to me that the central issue for me in terms of the life of faith was the question of all of these different forms of Christianity, i.e. with how Christianity has been interpreted and mediated. There were too many forms of Christianity to even count. Protestantism, for instance, which emerged out of the theological shift we've covered in this series, proliferated doctrines that pointed in, well at least as I perceived it initially, in all directions. And this frustrated me terribly because it made it seem to me that Christianity itself was incoherent. How do you know which version is right when there are so many versions out there? And then it dawned on me, both suddenly and over time, that all of these forms fell under the blanket form of what I like to call medianity. All of Christianity was mediated. To use a musical metaphor, there was the original piece, and then there were multiple arrangements and transpositions. Just because the original couldn't be located apart from those arrangements and transpositions didn't mean there was no original, and it certainly didn't mean that there was no truth in the original. An idea from Nietzsche is useful here. I mentioned it back in episode 2 of the series, but it will help to unpack it a bit. Nietzsche, in Beyond Good and Evil, talks about his realization that all philosophy up to now has consisted of the unconscious autobiographies of those who have written philosophy. Nietzsche came to this realization, and it became part of his formulation of what he called perspectivism, which is the idea, broadly speaking, that we cannot get away from the fact that multiple, even infinite, perspectives will always be available on any particular consideration. I don't think Nietzsche was an absolute relativist, um, although I guess this is up for debate. He didn't think that multiple perspectives meant no truth, but rather that truth itself becomes caught up in multiplicity and multivalence as a result of these multiple perspectives. It becomes a mobile army of metaphors that are easily worn out through overuse. Just because there are multiple perspectives on a thing doesn't mean that there is no thing itself. So what irked me most about Christianity when I was younger, as I found it, this proliferation of different interpretations and different theological formulations, these different Christianities, started to become something of a grace for me. It was a gift. 
If there were so many different ways of viewing Christianity and even so many different ways of opposing it, there must be something there. But to notice what is there, for me at least, meant becoming aware of how we mediate the world. And this meant coming to terms with better and worse ways of mediating the world. Here's a metaphor from fine arts. Say you're painting a portrait. Well, there are good and bad portraits, good resemblances and bad ones. Well, mediation is like that too. Of course, painting is a form of mediation. There are portraits of Christianity that are bad resemblances, and there are portraits that are better. And there is also a consonance between the better portraits and the worse ones. I could actually write a book on the subject of mediation, of course. In fact, I have written a book on this, and I... And even though it's already too long, it's probably still too short. But I think that the matter of how we mediate the world can be summed up in terms of two poles or locations. This is just very roughly speaking, of course. I've been working with these throughout the series, but it'll help to state them more explicitly. First, there is the intimate pole. And second, there is the universal pole. I'm tipping my hat, by the way, to the wonderful philosopher William Desmond, for those who want to know. The earliest forms of Christianity, which are much more consonant with each other, much more sort of congruent, these are the portraits that resemble each other, found a middle point between these two poles or locations. There was an acknowledgement of the vital importance of both intimacy and universality. Christianity, to begin with, aimed for an intimate universal, not a universal at the expense of the intimate or some intimate at the expense of the universal. It aimed for something in the middle. Jesus said that the road was narrow and few find it. Well, yes, it's hard to take the middle ground. The doctrine of the analogy of being, which I've talked about, is an example of this middle ground, um, with the doctrine of the incarnation as the perfect example and sacrament of this. God becomes man without ceasing to be God and also without destroying what is truly human. Much of the history of Christianity after Duns Scotus can be tracked as a kind of movement towards absolutizing the intimate against the universal. The consequences of this are somewhat terrifying. To make the intimate more absolute than the universal is to arrive at the absolutizing of subjectivity itself, which is to say, each of us is forced to negotiate and mediate the meaning of everything from the very contracted smallness that is ourselves. This is what gives rise to multiple contradicting viewpoints as well. Modernity, with its emphasis on total autonomy, encourages this. One example, which I've also already mentioned, of how this plays out is Martin Luther's idea that the individual can sit in front of the scriptures, open them up, and interpret them without any help from tradition. Tradition, of course, is one manifestation of the universal. So Luther's idea, sola scriptura, that, that you can know the scriptures in isolation from tradition, it's kind of absurd. The subject is, in the process, de-worlded left lost and stranded and largely homeless. To make the intimate absolute is to say, there are no rules or guidelines that can help me on any given matter. I need to figure it out alone, and so do you. In visceral existential terms, this places the entire burden of reality at the feet of the stranded single subject.
To make the universal absolute at the expense of the intimate also has its problems, mind you, as can be found in various political and ideological totalitarianisms, both on the left and on the right of the political spectrum. The universal can easily squash our subjectivity and our individuality if there is no room for our intimate explorations of the universal within the particular. In grappling with various ways of mediating the world, the details of which I will spare you, I have come to understand that our orientation towards the world is always towards the whole, which includes both the intimate and the universal. This may seem like a fairly nonsensical idea to you at first, but I think it holds true for everyone. We are orientated towards the whole. Anyone you've ever met has a worldview, and for better or worse, every worldview makes claims about what best accounts for the whole. You'll find this in various isms, from feminism to Islamism to scientism to nihilism. Even nihilism is orientated towards the whole, although it accounts for the whole by saying that there is, ultimately, no value to be found there. What the Bible describes as idolatry, and what you and I might simply call ideology, can be defined as an account of the whole that is insufficient, but which we would like to take as sufficient. Put differently, idolatry takes the intimate as the fullest possible account of the universal. If this idolatrous intimacy is overemphasized, what results is a very unstable basis upon which to build a life. Doubts are cast on the whole vision of the whole. To be absolutely clear, I'm in no way an enemy of doubt. Doubt is very useful and can be very good, but not as a dominant or dominating posture towards the whole of reality. It's good only as a partial and provisional solution to the problems of a particular way of seeing. And here's why. Doubt's main function is to keep everything within the purview of our own egotism and understanding. That's a pretty key idea, so I'm going to repeat it. Doubt's main function is to keep everything within the purview of our own egotism and understanding. In other words, Doubt says that the universal must be controlled or even determined by the intimate that the subject, that's you and me, must be able to account for everything on our own and in our own terms. That's a lot of pressure right there, and I honestly don't think anyone can handle it. Again, doubt can be good, especially if what is doubted is obviously not true. In fact, I'd say it's essential to doubt what isn't true. If you make a claim that I think is ridiculous, my doubt of that claim is a sign that my reason is doing its job. But when doubt is made more absolute than it should be, when doubt takes charge over everything and determines that my entire stance towards the whole should be measured only by what I am intuitively capable of accepting as true, then doubt is an indication that reason is malfunctioning. It's seizing control over what it cannot control. If doubt is made absolute and keeping everything within the purview of our own egotism and understanding, the idea there is really that knowledge and truth are measured only by what I am capable of accepting. To appreciate how problematic this would be, that is, this idea of measuring what is knowable only by the capacity of the knower, I'll use Chesterton's example of the difference between a madman and a mystic. 
The madman may be paranoid. The madman may be paranoid and you may tell him that he shouldn't worry because not everyone is out to get him. The madman would recoil at this because only someone who is out to get him would say that he is not out to get him. So, as Chesterton says, the madman's explanation for the thing accounts for the facts as well as your explanation. The only difference is he is wrong and you are not. Your doubting of the madman is quite sensible. His doubting of you isn't. What's the major difference here? Well, the difference is the degree to which doubt is allowed to place everything under one's own purview or control. The madman's posture places all of reality, everything outside of him, under the dominion of his own mode of knowing. The mystic does not. The mystic makes the assumption that his own reason is limited and should therefore allow for the possibility of what is not conceivable. Chesterton puts it like this, the mystic only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The mystic, the one who is capable of poetic consciousness, only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the madman who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. So, Doubt is fine, but only if doubt itself can be doubted, and only if it does not cast doubt on the whole, since we cannot ever, given our own finitude, know the whole completely. But this does not mean that there is no wholeness, just as our finite conceptions of Christianity do not mean that there is no Christianity. In the various theological modifications that I've discussed in this series, the most obvious problem that I see is the vision of the whole shifts from one of participation towards one of abstract reasoning. And this opens a way for people like Descartes and other moderns who take human reason as the measure of all things. To do this is to set up a dualism between the subject and the object, between the subjective and the object, between the personal, the intimate and the universal. Modernity made this dualism the norm, and post-modernity has perpetuated it. It wasn't ever about participation, but was about a totalizing account of the whole, or a totalizing negation of the whole by means of some very limited perspective on it. The mystical frame, which is the one I've come to adopt, says, don't worry if you don't understand everything, wholeness can still be found. And you can still find yourself within that wholeness. Try to understand as much as you can, of course, but don't presume that intellectual knowing is sufficient for a meaningful life. You know this fairly intuitively. You know people, I'm sure, who are quite content, but who are not necessarily intellectual giants. Often intellect can get in the way of participating in the truth of all things. And that really is what it means to be in the middle. That's what I've come to understand. This is what it means to be negotiating the intimacy of the universal and the universal within the intimate. It means that we'll always be negotiating the world through its various mediations, and we ourselves will mediate the world through our own personalities and preferences and experiences. I've become acutely aware of the nature of my own biases, the nature of my own mediation of the world, and I can certainly encourage you to put in the work to actually try and figure out how is it that you see 
because that will also tell you what you are prone to not seeing. What the modernist frame has done, which is what I've talked about in terms of university, nominalism, voluntarism, and representational knowing, what these things have done is suggest that there is no absolute, no universality, no ultimate goodness, no true liberty. But this, I think, is simply a distortion that results from siding with the intimate over and against the universal. And most of my own journey back home, so to speak, has consisted in acknowledging that there is a wholeness beyond the intimacy of my own understanding. There is a truth beyond my own knowing. There is goodness within which the various goods in the world and life can be grounded. This may seem, I realize, fairly wishy-washy to some of you, but the consequences of losing the intimate universal, of siding with either the intimate or the universal, seem quite obviously problematic to me. It's difficult to be the piggy in this theological middle, but it's better than being forced into false polarizations that ultimately negate our own experience. This is something accounted for in basic Trinitarian theology. Between the speaker, God, and the spoken word, the Son, is the breath, spirit, that mediates between the speaker and the spoken word. And Christ is also described as a mediator. So I think mediation is, is central to Christianity, which makes sense since communication is central to Christianity. All Christianity will be medianity. It will be negotiated meaning. And some forms of it will certainly be better mediations than others, just as some portraits of a person will carry better likenesses than others. Where I've landed in all of this is not with the passive resignation that there is too much to understand and therefore I will never understand it, nor with the overly active assumption of power over the known and over the knowable. Rather, I've landed somewhere in between those things. I am passively, re I am passively receptive to the real, amazed really that there is a resonance between mind and matter and between my being and the world of beings. I allow the work of the divine to manifest itself to me in my pathetically little finite disintegrating human frame. I am also active, heroically seeking to find meaning in the world in both intimate and universal terms. For now, that's pretty much the best I can offer. And that, for better or worse, is the end of this series. There's so much more to be said, and given enough time to say it, I will still not be able to come to the end of it. There is a surplus that will always escape us, and that's fine by me. That surplus is precisely why we are philosophical and theological detectives. The point of dabbling in mystery is that there is always more to know. Mystery, after all, is less the unknown than it is the endlessly knowable. If you are interested in exploring some of the ideas I've explored in this series in more depth, I would recommend a few books. First off, the work of Paul Tyson is wonderful. It's both easy to read and yet not too simplistic, especially his books Returning to Reality and Defragmenting Modernity. Then for discussions of the theological origins of modernity, you can have a look at the work of Brad Gregory, especially his Unintended Reformation and his book Rebel in the Ranks. Also see Michael Allen Gillespie's Theological Origins of Modernity and John Milbank's very tricky theology and social theory and his 
I think even trickier, beyond secular order, for supplemental reading on the history of metaphysics, which is some of what I've I've dabbled in here, Jean Grondin's Metaphysics is an amazing guide. And Jacques Maritain's Introduction to Philosophy is also incredibly helpful. Some of what I spoke about in terms of nominalism um, was taken from Maritain's work. I've also more recently been inspired for the series by D.C. Schindler's book Love and the Postmodern Predicament. It's uh, one of my favorite books of 2018. It's an amazing book and you should definitely read it. If you want a wonderful introductory book on philosophical hermeneutics for the church, and I think generally if you're interested in philosophical hermeneutics, this is a great book to go to, Merrill Westfell's Whose Community, Which Interpretation. It's the perfect place to start. My own book, Seeing Things As They Are, offers my own take on some of the important questions regarding how we interpret the world and various things that we read. Um, and that is the kind of reading list that has been very helpful in me formulating this series. And I know that some of those books will be helpful to you if you, uh, if you want to get into them. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I so appreciate it. Uh, you can support me at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Um, I will post contact details in the show notes. And until next time, may you know the profound intimacy of the universal and the universality of the infinite within your own finite experience. And may you know that to be in the middle is not to be displaced or without a home, but is often a sign that you are at home within the various tensions of life. Oh